Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. My oldest daughter and I absolutely love C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Do you know it? The king, the true king of Narnia, is a lion named Aslan, and he's living in exile ever since the white witch had seized it, making it always winter, but never Christmas. And she rules with a ruthless hand. Anyone who threatens her rule is either killed, exiled, or turned into stone. And all of the stone statues are used to decorate her expansive house around the courtyard. And the two girls in the story, Lucy and Susan, sisters, they come into the courtyard. And I want to read to you how that particular scene is written. What an extraordinary place, cried Lucy. All those stone animals and people too. It's, it's like a museum. Hush, said Susan. Aslan's doing something. And he was indeed. He had bound up to the stone lion and he breathed on him. Then without waiting a moment, he whisked around, almost as if a cat chasing its tail. And he breathed also on the stone dwarf which, as you remember, was standing just a few feet from the lion with his back to it. Everywhere, the statues were coming to life. The courtyard no longer looked like a museum. It looked more like a zoo. Wow, what an exciting scene from a great story. I love to try and think about what would Lucy and Susan would have been thinking as they saw these stone creatures come to life. Well, how would we these stone statues feel when all of a sudden they're, they're unlimited and life-filled again? Now, maybe for some of you, especially at our sites, I'm a little more lifelike than you've seen me before. Maybe you've only ever seen me on the weekly news or the table talk videos for the Connect groups. Well, I'm Angela, and I am the groups and care pastor here at C4. So good morning to you in Port Perry. In Bowmanville, those who are listening online, good morning to all of you. I was incredibly excited when I realized that John had asked me to speak on the fifth I am statement because it's surrounded by another great story that I really love to try and imagine what would they have been thinking about if they had witnessed what they got to see. So we're going to be looking at a story that comes from the fourth book of the New Testament, and that book is called John, simply titled that because the writer was John. He didn't take time to be creative and think of a title like Convergence or anything like that, just named right after his name. So every story in the book of John is incredibly exciting because John was Jesus' BFF. And so it's kind of like he got the exclusive. Every time John uh, saw Jesus do a miraculous sign, he writes about it. And I have said so many times to people who have never read the scripture before, I say, start with the book of John. Because when you read about what Jesus did on this earth from his best friend's perspective, it is so impacting. The story we're looking at today actually happens at the latter part of the three years of Jesus' ministry time. The story's in chapter 11, and it's 
about an extremely personal moment for Jesus Christ because it involves people whom he deeply loved. John 11:5 says that in there, the key people in this story are Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they live in Bethany, which is in Judea, so it's very, very close to Jerusalem. Now, the other books that tell us about Jesus' ministry time, they explain to us that Jesus spent a lot of time in Bethany, probably because Bethany means poor, and he loved being with those who were in most need. But he went there specifically because he loved this family. And I assume he just was able to be himself there. Mary, we've heard about her. She is the one who anoints Jesus. There's another account where she's sitting at his feet and just listening with intent. But this story today is where the two sisters, Mary and Martha, send a message to Jesus. And they tell him, Lazarus, your good friend, whom you love, is sick. Now, of course, back then, there's no such thing as instant messaging. You know how painful it is to look at those three dots and be like, come on, reply already, right? They didn't have that option, but I would assume it was just as painful to see someone start to head out on this long journey and travel to go and deliver the message that you wanted someone to get so quickly. The interesting thing is, when Jesus received this message, he actually didn't rush off. He took a couple of days, didn't even talk to the disciples about what was going on. And I don't know exactly what he did, but some say he spent those days praying. When he was ready, he announced to the disciples, okay, let's go back to Jerusalem. And they objected. They said, Jesus, I know you're the son of God, so likely you don't forget anything. But I feel like you might be forgetting right now. Uh, Remember in Jerusalem, that's where they tried to stone you. Happened in chapter 10 and chapter 8. Like, I, I think that they wanted to try and protect him. But after two days of praying, Jesus wasn't afraid. He knew that this was needed so that the disciples would get it. I mean, Sure, they had already seen him turn water into wine, walk on water, and and feed 5,000 people with just a little bit of fish and bread. So they knew he could do some amazing things, but he wanted them to see something so miraculous. So if you haven't already, please open your Bibles or or go to the YouVersion app and scroll to John chapter 11. So Jesus tells the disciples that Lazarus had died. And they are cautioning him, then saying, well, why would we go into the middle of danger for a dead man? They're questioning him, and Thomas says something that contradicts the question, and he says, well, let us go with him, and we will die too. Mr. Doom and Gloom, that Thomas. But, but I think we should note He is willing to just follow Jesus wherever he's going to go. John 11, 14 then says, Jesus is speaking, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Well, there is that key word, believe. I think that should have been the title of this book. The writer uses it 98 times. Believe. Believe. In the Greek, it means to be persuaded of, 
to place confidence in, to completely trust in, to rely upon. So the purpose of the miracle in this story was to persuade the followers of Jesus to overcome all their doubts and the obstacles and then to arrive at a full state of belief. Jesus barely arrives and Martha rushes out to meet him, likely didn't even tell her sister where she was going. She stops him before entering the village. And that's something that actually surprises me a little because Martha has the gift of helps and hospitality. In other accounts, she would have welcomed him, maybe washed his feet. She certainly would have prepared food and, and, and hosted him in her home. But this time, she is emotionally overwhelmed and she's just reacting based on her gut. I love reading accounts about Martha because she is an immediate, reactive, spontaneous woman and I totally get her. Recently, the staff here at C4, we've been doing some personality testing. It's called Enneagram, and the Enneagram testing, every personality gets a number. So according to this test, Martha, she would have been an eight, the challenger. I heard a podcast once that described what is the eight. So let's imagine you're all at the movie theater, the film stops working. The eight is the first one to jump out, go find the manager, and tell them of the problem. I, too, am an eight. And it is not an easy personality for a female in ministry. But God does not make mistakes. We are as he designed. Now, did you just think, oh, maybe I should nudge the person beside me and say, uh, see, I am what I am. But actually, I'm going to caution you from doing that. I've done it before. Um, but the thing is, God actually says, no, that's not all for you. You need to work to improve, to become whole, to become complete. So instead, we go to the great I am and ask him, would you refine me over and over again? This particular text is one of those moments where Martha's eightness is so evident and Jesus has a conversation of refinement with her. John eleven twenty one. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She couldn't understand why he delayed. The message had been sent with plenty of time. He could have come before Lazarus died. Can you relate? Have you ever wondered, why is God delaying in answering this request that I've given him? Where are you, Lord? Why, why are you stalling? Do you not even care? Where were you when those kids were picking on me? Where were you when my brother-in-law took his own life? Where were you when my husband got cancer? Where were you when my mother-in-law had a heart attack and almost died? See, those are the questions I've asked. And I think that we need to hear from this particular text it is not wrong to ask God and to show him how you feel. Because if you see Jesus' response, he doesn't rebuke her. He knew Martha didn't realize there was something bigger going on than just her. Now her disappointment was so intense 
because she believed in Jesus so strongly. She expected much from him. Her faith is undeniable. She trusted Jesus' power, and then she calls on the omnipotence because she knew he was the son of God. When she says the next statement, she says, but I know even now that God will give you whatever you ask. We can see that she doesn't tell Jesus how he should answer. One wrote her response this way. She puts her unfulfilled answer to her faith in his hands, leaving all doors open for him to respond as he wills. And the miracle that he's about to do is delayed even longer. He could have removed the sorrow right then, but his focus is not our happiness. His perspective was different than Martha's perspective. He wanted to unite the disciples to him on a deeper level. And he knew this is what was needed to be able to do that. So Jesus compassionately, pastorally, he reassures Martha. John eleven twenty three. 23. Your brother will rise again. And Martha, without hesitation, responds, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Because many of the Jews who had been there consoling her were regularly reminding her, the righteous will be resurrected at the end of time, at the day of judgment. She knew this because it also was prophesied in the book of Daniel and Isaiah. And even Jesus, during his ministry time, he spoke about it. John 6, 38 to 40, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but I'll raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us what it's going to be like when this happens. So the Lord himself will come down from heaven. The believers who have died will rise from their graves. And all who are still alive will be caught up in the clouds and meet with the Lord in the air. This is quite fantastic and incredible to think about. Maybe when the moment is right. But for Martha, being reminded about a future resurrection... It wasn't comforting in that moment. I assume disappointment in her tone when she says, yes, Jesus, I know he will rise. Likely wondering, did you just come to tell me what I already know? What about now? What about how I'm feeling today? And this is how Jesus responds. John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He's adding something so significant to what the Jews believed about their hope of being resurrected after death. Jesus adds to the message of salvation, like he does with all the I am statements. He brings a focus on himself, the person of Jesus, the son of God, and he says, I am the resurrection. He is saying, you believe in me and you receive the life that is no longer subject to the power of death. The story progresses and the more reserved sister, Mary, comes and meets them at Lazarus's tomb. And as soon as Jesus sees her and her tender face reddened from crying and seeing the other Jews with her who had been mourning, then the shortest verse in the entire Bible, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. Tears ran down Jesus' face. 
Jesus entered into their sorrow. And if you are hurting in any way today, I believe this story tells us that God cares deeply. He weeps with you. God can cry at the world's crying. But it's not with a hopelessness. It is with compassion. And I remember the very first time I had ever experienced grief. I just finished grade nine and I was working at a Christian camp. I finished my shift in the dish pit and I was relaxing in the staff dorm and I hear those exciting words, Angela, a telephone call, and I grabbed the phone, but I was struggling. I could barely hear my mom's words. Her tone was so serious as she said, honey, there's been an accident. And your friend Melanie, she was riding her bike and, and there was a truck and the driver he didn't stop and and she died instantly i i didn't cry at that moment i was in shock i could barely breathe i had never experienced grief before i had someone drive me home and i attended the funeral and after the funeral my emotions changed to anger and i remember sitting in the kitchen with my mom and i started to vent my feelings and i was like what God, what are you doing? Are, are we just pawns that you're playing a game with us? You just take us whenever you please? Yeah, that was me in grade nine. The grief was so painful. I returned back to camp. I talked about Melanie quite a bit. I, I shared memories of her that summer, and it was one conversation I had with a camp counselor that helped me see I was completely missing something. See, just weeks before Mel died, she came with me to a church event and she heard the gospel, and she became a believer. That camp counselor helped me to know that the, the God who knows everything, he knew Melanie's time on this world was coming to an end, and he loved her so much, he gave her the opportunity right before he died to prepare for the life to come. This is what I learned that summer knowing that there is a future resurrection for believers does bring hope and it gives me confidence I will see Melanie again. And that experience deeply impacted my understanding of who God is and how much he loves us. And it changed my perspective on how I would live out the rest of my days. But what does it mean to be resurrected? We're just going to pause from our story for one second to understand that I think we need to jump ahead in their future. Look at what's written about Jesus when he was resurrected. And we won't read the whole chapter, um, but I'm going to ask you, please, later today, would you read 1 Corinthians 15? That passage is so jam-packed with information about the resurrection. Essentially, what happened at that point, the Jewish leaders, they had put Jesus on trial. They had him crucified on a cross because when he declared that he was the unique son of God, they felt that if he was crucified on the cross, that is such a horrible death. There's no way God would actually allow his son to endure that kind of death. So if they put him on the cross and he was crucified, it would prove that he wasn't the son of God. Jesus dies. 1 Corinthians 15, 4 to 8 says he was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Peter, then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500. Then to James, to all the apostles, and last to me. So the writer here is Paul. And it is assumed by most scholars that Paul 
interviewed the disciples, gathered the information for this particular text within five years of the cross. And so in that short amount of time, it's really um, difficult to, to assume that he made any error. More than likely, all the details were very near to his mind. And, and so we can trust what he wrote about in this passage. And when Christ appeared his res- after his resurrection, he had flesh. And his physical appearance must have been similar to what he had looked at like before death because people recognized him. Yet Jesus did not look exactly as he had before he died. Paul writes about the resurrection body. He says it is raised. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44 says it's imperishable, in glory, in power, a spiritual body. Oh, there are days when I think about how exciting it'll be that this lowly body becomes glorious. No more pain or aches or stretch marks or wrinkles. Maybe I'll be tall enough to use the big podium. Now for Martha, standing there on the street with Jesus, she had that hope of a future resurrection. She understood after death, Lazarus would receive a renewed physical body and that he would live again after God makes the earth new. But Jesus isn't only actually referring to that when he corrects Martha. Jesus changes the direction of Martha's faith from a focus on the resurrection that is to come to what already is in him. Jesus, with great power, points to himself and says, I am the resurrection and the life. The resurrection is not only what occurs on the last day, but an event that has already begun in him and is present. The everlasting life which Jesus gives is basically the same both sides of the grave. Life is changed. It's not taken away. John eleven twenty five says, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus has the power to give life. Earlier this summer, we know that it was taught that Jesus says, I am the word, and the word was with God during the time of creation. So when Adam had life breathed into him, God, Jesus, gave him the ability to live. He gives all of us the ability to live. But more than that, Jesus has the power to give new life. This side of heaven, God wants a relationship with every single one in the whole world. Because in relationship with him, that is what it means to really come alive. Jesus continues, he who believes in me will live. The Jews believed that the righteous would be resurrected. And Jesus clarifies, all who believe wholeheartedly will be resurrected. There is resurrection at the end of time for those who believe. But that's a result, an outcome of the life that he gives you now. A new, transformed life in the now. John 11, 25, 26, I'll read it. The end says, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. This pair of artfully combined statements, they say the same truth, but there's an effect that's made when both the words live and die have a dual meaning. See verse 25, it says, the believer who dies in the natural sense will live an eternal life. 
And in verse 26, whoever lives in faith in their natural human existence will never experience a spiritual death. Jesus then asks the most crucial question, do you believe this? It's like he was saying, what would it mean if Lazarus comes back to life? He's been in this tomb for days and you've all been mourning. What would it mean to you, Martha? What would it mean to you if you saw your brother there ready to tease you, ready to protect you, standing in front of you again? What does that mean? And then he says, and do you believe in me to do it? So the story gets even more exciting. Lazarus had died and death is final the irreversible end, and Jesus is described as being troubled. Some say it's actually he felt anger because he was facing his opponents, not just death, but sin and Satan, the life-sucking one, too. There's a connection between Satan and death. In Hebrews 2.14, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil. It's as if he is declaring, enough now of tears, enough wailing, enough honor has been given to death against the power of death. Jesus, our supreme champion, God's glory now enters the arena. And Jesus came to Lazarus' tomb. He instructs the stone be taken away. He prays a simple prayer to show his dependence upon the Father. And he cries, Lazarus, come out. John eleven forty four. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Can you imagine the utter astonishment of that moment. It could be no one else but Lazarus. There he is standing the exact same body as before. The funeral just became a celebration. What does it mean that Lazarus is alive? One writer suggests this. What Martha, Mary, and Lazarus felt was what the disciples felt on the first Easter. Easter hits a new note of hope and faith that what God did in Bethany for Lazarus, he did also in Jerusalem in Jesus, and it can and will repeat on grand scale for my friend Melanie, for all of us, for the world, against all odds. The irreversible will be reversed. Jesus has the power to give life after this one. But that's as if that's not enough. <laughs> That's not all. He says, whoever lives in me will be spiritually awakened and no longer in this life are spiritually dead. Jesus is speaking of transformed living in the now. He makes us new creations. I have done enough pastoral care meetings to know that transformed lives mean freedom from the bondage of addiction, freedom from fear, Lives full of purpose, if only we would regularly and openly invite him into our circumstances every day. John eleven forty. Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. 
so that his followers then and now claimed, then and now would believe that he is who he claimed to be. This verse tells us then that if we believe, we will see the glory of God, the Shekinah glory. That means Jesus is the full dwelling place of God with us. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, he reduces everything that he has said in deeply significant language associated with that saying all to the single phrase, glory of God. If you skip over to chapter 17, take a look at the very beginning of it, the first couple of verses. Jesus is having a conversation with his father. And in that prayer, he acknowledges God gave him the authority to give eternal life. And it's as if he knew you were wondering, what is eternal life? Yes, you understand it's life that doesn't end. But he actually gives a definition that we need to take note of. John 17, 2 to 3, Jesus defines eternal life. Now this is eternal life. To know you, the one, only true God and Jesus Christ. So eternal life starts when you give your life to Jesus. When you say yes to him, the Holy Spirit then enters you, becomes your closest companion, because he then is in you. Living a spiritually alive life means being reconciled to our creator, knowing him, and being known by him. A life like that can bring joy and purpose that just transforms the perspective in which you carry out your days. Because his spirit enters you, and empowers you to live a life of holiness in the now. So how does that spiritual awakening happen? It is through belief in Jesus. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you're made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. When Pastor John introduced this particular series, he told us, what does it mean to say, I believe? This is what he said. I know him. I've met him. I trust him. I place my complete confidence in him. Everything that happens to me in this life all depends on Jesus. And everything that happens after my death, because I know I'm going to die, depends on him too. So when Jesus rose from the dead, death lost power. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, and 56 say, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So why does this matter? Because every human being disobeys God, and we can't save ourselves from the punishment that our disobedience deserves. We have a debt that we can't pay. But God's own son, Jesus Christ, he paid that debt when he died. And then Jesus had the power to be the first to rise from the dead. And if we believe that particular truth, then we too can have eternal life in the now and the not yet. Now maybe... Maybe for some of you, maybe that's the first time you've ever heard that. Maybe for others of you, you've heard it time and time again, but you've, you've rejected it 
But for some reason today, something shifted and you've become more softened to that particular truth. And, and yet, maybe for others, if I say, do you believe now? You're still not. What, what is stopping you? Is it too much pain? Is it because you question whether or not God cares? From this particular story, we see Jesus cares deeply when we're suffering. The Bible says he is near to the brokenhearted. After seeing Lazarus come back to the life, many Jewish leaders still chose not to believe. I think it is because they didn't want to give up things that they held so dear. They didn't want their life to be changed in any way. But I can reassure you that a redeemed life is worth it. So will you say today, I do believe. If you've never accepted Jesus, I want to give you a moment to say, yes, I know you are the resurrection and the life now. And I'm going to lead those of you who, who want to accept him through a very simple, sorry, thank you, please, prayer. We use this one in Alpha. So let's all close our eyes. We just give some privacy to those who've never prayed before. I will say the words, and you can just repeat after me in your heart or your head because God knows what you're thinking. Lord God, I am sorry for the wrongs I've committed against you. Help me to turn from them. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, that he died in my place. I believe he rose again and that I too will rise again. Please come as Lord into my life and transform it. Amen. If that is the very first time you've ever prayed that prayer, please tell someone that you came with, or, or maybe afterwards there will be some people up front. You could come and talk to one of them. Maybe, though, you actually find yourself somewhere different in this particular story. Maybe like Martha, you do believe Jesus is the resurrection and you have uh, a long-range hope of being resurrected in the last day, but you're asking him, what about my life today? Are you feeling overwhelmed at the events of what's going on? Are you, are you questioning God's goodness? Philip Yancey wrote in the book, The Jesus the I, I Never Knew, he says, there are two ways to look at human history. One way is to focus on the wars, the violence, the squalor, the pain, the tragedy, and the death. And Easter, it just seems like a fairy tale. But another way is to look at the world and take Easter as the starting point, the one incontrovertible fact about how God treats those whom he loves. Well, then human history becomes the preview of our ultimate reality. Hope then flows. It's all about our perspective. His spirit will speak to yours in a place that is so much deeper than any of the words I say can penetrate. So you need to go to him and say, would you help me to find hope in your plan? You know, sometimes we feel like God is delaying because he doesn't care. And yet from this text, we see he cares deeply. Charles Swindle wrote this, God's perspective is eternal, not temporal. If the Lord were to answer every prayer for healing by restoring health, no one would ever die. But we would be stuck in bodies that feel pain, fall ill, experience injury, grow tired, wear out forever. 
We would be forced to ride a perpetual roller coaster of illness and health, injury and repair, until we finally are just wearied out from living and say, I'm wishing for death. But thank God, he has a better way. So I want to pray also for those who resonate with how Martha felt. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would reveal yourself into their circumstances and help them to know your presence with them. Lord God, anyone who feels a little bit like how Martha felt like, saying, what about me? What about now? God, would you show them you deeply care, you're with them, and if you can bring Lazarus back from the dead, days later, you can handle anything they're facing. Amen. And for those of us who do believe, we must engage in mission with him. God's mission is to reconcile the world to himself, and we are responsible to help people know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. So many of your coworkers, your neighbors, your, your friends, your family are dead men walking. And there is an urgency to this message because our earthly lives are limited. The Bible assures us this part of our existence is nothing compared to what we will receive after death. So who in your life does not believe who of your friends are searching for what you've already found? You need to be praying for them. You need to be loving them. My advice is don't judge their non-belief because it is not going to help them want to come into a community like this. You pray for them, and as a tool to help you, there's the Alpha prayer commitment cards. In front of you, I, I would encourage you to take that home. Ask God, whose name do I just simply need to be praying for? You can put that card on your fridge, in your wallet, on your Bible. Or maybe if you don't want to use a piece of paper, you just simply put a reminder on your phone for 11.02 every morning. Why 11.02? Luke 11.02 says, when you pray, you say, your kingdom come. You're not responsible for whether or not they accept the invitation. You just pray and let the rest be up to him. So recall that image that I started with from the Chronicles of Narnia. I want to read to you the description of how Aslan breathed life into the lion that was stone. This is how it says. I expect you've seen someone put a lighted match to a bit of a newspaper, which is propped up in a grate against an unlit fire. And for a second, nothing seems to have happened. And then you notice a tiny streak of flame creeping along the edge of the newspaper. It was like that now. For a second, after Aslan had breathed upon him, the stone lion looked the same. Then a tiny streak of gold began to run along his mar white marbled back. Then it spread. Then the color seemed to lick all over him as a flame licks all over a piece of paper. Then while the hindquarters were still obviously stoned, the lion shook his mane and all the heavy stone folds rippled into living hair. And then he opened a great red mouth, warm and living, and he gave a prodigious yawn. And now his legs had come to life. He lifted one of them and scratched himself. Then, having caught sight of Aslan, he went bounding after him and frisking round him, whimpering with delight and jumping up to lick his face. Well, the magic of Narnia is, of course, 
the miracle of the resurrection. God, he breathed the breath of life back into Jesus after his death. And then he similarly, right before ascending to heaven, Jesus commissions his followers. John 20, verses 22. Jesus says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. I believe, and I've been praying, that statues would come to life today. You know, until the great resurrection and the hereafter, we can experience even smaller resurrections in the here and now. So one day, our bodies will be renewed. But today, may it be our spirits. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, I believe you are the resurrection and the life. Would you breathe on us? May the cold stone within us come to life. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.